Welcome to uh, welcome back to First Baptist Church. If this is your first time visiting, welcome to our evening service. Uh, we have been going through the Book of Psalms, uh, and this is the last of our summer Sundays. So we've been meeting every single Sunday evening, and uh, this summer compared to last summer, there's been a lot of things that are different. We have air conditioning this time; it's a lot more comfortable to meet. But we also have taken away the fellowship meal that follows that the church provides. Yet many of you have faithfully been coming to hear the word of the Lord. So on behalf of every single preacher and through the Psalms series, we just want to thank you for being here and thank you for being attentive. Uh, Now to the book of Psalms. Uh, The book of Psalms speaks on the diversity of human emotion, speaks about faith, and it's expressed primarily through song. We see feelings of encouragement, feelings of individual joy, and sometimes that individual joy leads the psalmist to then encourage other people and lead other people in song. Sometimes in psalms, there is deep prophetic truths about Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Other times, we see deep, deep sadness. We see loneliness. We see abandonment. The book of Psalms ultimately challenges us to look at our faith, to look at our worship life, to look at our prayer life. No matter the situation in the book of Psalms, the Psalms ultimately encourages us, encourages us to shift our attention to the things of the Lord. And that's our prayer this evening, that we give true worship to the Lord, that we shift our attention to the Lord. So this evening, we are in a book of Psalms, chapter 22. Pastor Harry read it for us, a Psalm of David, Others call it the psalm of the cross. There's no uh, direct moment that scholars can point to and say that this is when David wrote the psalm. It was in light of this situation that David then wrote the psalm 22. However, David did have enemies. And this describes a moment of seeming defeat. Describes almost a near-death experience for King David, a moment of great affliction, great pain, great discouragement, great sadness. Uh, so Psalm 22 is, is packed with, with so much truths, and we won't be able to touch on every single truth and gem found in Psalm 22, but we'll speak on some of them. So not only does this psalm speak about the strength and faithfulness of David as he praises God through tough, sad times. Not only does the psalm, again, speak to us now and shows us how we should live in light of various trials and afflictions that we may go to, this psalm also gives us insight into the Messiah, gives us insight into what he was thinking, his inward thoughts through his suffering while he was on the cross. So there's so much here in Psalm 22. So I won't touch on every single verse, but the goal for us is to understand, apply to Psalm There are many things to take away. So I'll break down our time this evening with three points. We have three points, very simple points. Point one is the king's painful prayer. Point one, the king's painful prayer. Point two is the king's praise. And point three is God's plan. Before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we open your word, Father, we acknowledge that we are weak and that you are strong, Father, and it is not my words that uh, sanctify believers or grow believers or save sinners, Lord, but it is your word, Father. So shift our attention to your word, shift our attention to you, and we look to help. We, we look to you for help as we study your word, Father. So be with us this evening. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So point number one, the king's painful 
prayer, we have a distinguishing line from this psalm. Let's read verses 1 to 4 together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you never, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. So this first four verses shows us a few things. This shows us that King, the King David, he has been used to God's deliverance in the past. And now it seems like this king is in uncharted territories. He's so used to God being there for him, protecting him, but now it seems like this is no longer the case. He is, quote-unquote, forsaken. And the first 20 or so verses in the psalm show us that whatever was familiar to King David, this uh, familiar protective presence that God had over the king, is no longer there. That is no longer the case. This unknown enemy now is closing in on David, and it takes 20 verses of developing this thoughts of abandonment and forsakenness. So just imagine the agony. Imagine the loneliness that David has felt. David is close to the point of giving up. Verse 3 shows us that David had a relationship with God that there is an acknowledgement of the goodness of the Lord. This is someone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is indeed good. And this just maybe adds all the more to the pain. This adds all the more to forsakenness that he has felt because God has been there for him, and now God is not there right now. Where are you, God? This is an extreme sense of personal abandonment. So throughout these 20 verses, we see feelings of discouragement, but feelings of abandonment, and then they, they're followed by acknowledging who the Lord is. So this, this acknowledging about who God is, uh, it's, it's almost like a glimmer of hope in a seeming, seemingly hopeless situation. David has these expectations that God will deliver him, but these expectations aren't being met. David is feeling forsaken. When he speaks, it's almost like there's no response. The psalmist is at the lowest point. He has come to the end of himself, and he's still turning to God. He's still going to him, but still, there's no response. Many of us in this room, maybe we struggle with this. We feel this struggle. We know that the Lord promises to deliver us in many moments, but we are not yet delivered, and we, we begin to get impatient. We begin to lose trust. When we know God has promised us X, Y, Z, but here we are still waiting for these promises to be fulfilled, we feel abandoned. We feel forsaken. So there's this inward struggle that in the first 20 verses, David seems to have, that he, uh, he has cried to the same God who has delivered before, and he knows the same God can deliver again, and he is comforted, comforted by that fact. But then there's still uh, a sense of despair, knowing that the God who has delivered him before now seems so distant and so silent. It's kind of like these two emotions are at war with each other. It's like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Or God's people trying to rest on his promises. Like, Lord, I know you promised deliverance. And I know you have delivered before, but it has not yet come. What am I to do now? Where are you, Lord? 
Let's compare verses 1 and verses 3. Verses 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 3, we see the glimmer of hope. Yet you are holy. So let's look at verse 7 as uh, David describes the agony and the pain that he is going through. He says, All who see me mock me. So he's being attacked by a crowd of people. There's a mob of people around him, making fun of him, joking with him. And he says in verse 9, doesn't change the fact that yet you are holy. Yet you are, uh, sorry, yet you are he who took me from the womb. Verse 10, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. This is a painful prayer. This is also a powerful prayer. King David, the forsaken man, did not say, since I feel abandoned by you, God, I will now abandon you. I will never turn to you again. No, nothing like that is said. In this inward struggle, in this painful prayer, he is still going to the Lord in faith. He is not defeated yet. Uh, And friends, as we go through the Christian walk, all may seem lost. There may be feelings of despair, feeling like the enemy has been closing in, people ridiculing us, feelings of loneliness, feelings of abandonment, feeling forsaken, the anxiety when trouble is near. And that all can be true, but those things yet do not change who God is. God is still your God. God is still holy. God is still enthroned. Uh, And a recurring spiritual remedy in the Psalms is to fill your minds with the memories of God's past faithfulness. And that assures us of his present faithfulness. So David, in the midst of his anguish, he articulates that very same faith. He remembers God's faithfulness. And seems easier said than done. I'm making it sound very simple. So friends, I want you all to know that maybe, yes, we have experienced these painful prayers in our lives. Maybe not even to this extent. Maybe we've never been so close to death and so close to abandonment and loneliness that we have shouted these very same prayers. But to some extent, maybe some of you have felt forsaken before. And, and, and there's a temptation to think that when you uh, get to this point and you pray a prayer like this, that this is a prayer of defeat. So friends, I want to remind you that this prayer in Psalms 22 is not a prayer of weakness. It's not a prayer of, def- is this, this is not a prayer of defeat. This is what worshiping and praising God in the midst of the storm looks like. This is a prayer of faith. That though so many things around us go seemingly bad all the time, yet we remember that God is still holy. He is our God. And the fact that we can vocalize those things in our prayers says a lot. This is not a psalm of defeat. This is a psalm of victory. And we'll touch more on that in the book. Psalms 22 will touch more on that fact in the coming verses. But I want to remind you, if you were truly forsaken, if you were truly forsaken by God, God's goodness would not be in your mind. You would hate God. You would be an enemy of God. And that is not what we see so far here in Psalms 22. And and, and as the psalm continues, it gets a little more uh, sad, a little more dark. uh, And the glimmer of hope is still there, but you see it slowly just dwindle down in the first 20 verses. Let's read Psalm 22, 12 to 18, and we kind of see the situation uh, begin to change. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. His heart is just sinking within his chest. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So whatever the situation that David is going through, it seems to be getting worse. It's not a far detached moment. He is now being uh, attacked. It's almost like he's backed up in a corner and people are just coming closer and closer. He describes these enemies like animals ready to attack. Evil is creeping and the king has nowhere to go. David was so humbled by his adversaries, so powerless against them. Imagine a great king naked now. And people are taking his clothes and they're dividing them and they're casting lots. They're playing games. They're entertaining themselves at your embarrassment. This is where the psalm ends. If you were predicting, if you were betting men, you would say this is the end of King David. This is defeat. And in, 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 these, in these next set of verses, there comes a shift. So it doesn't look good for David. Uh, it, they, they essentially have him surrounded. Enemies are uh, encircling him. And, and it's almost like a, a flick of a switch. And this automatically uh, changes. So we see a, a, a complaint throughout the first 20 verses and then a truth about God. We see another complaint and then we see a truth about God. Then we see this complaint in verse 12 to 18, and we see a climax of the truth about God. So he's turning to the Lord, and his next verse is just a final plea. As these enemies are all around King David, this is his last hurrah, his climax of David's trust in the Lord throughout this great affliction. Psalm 22, verse 19 and 20. This is his last cry, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my sword, deliver my, my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the cross, from the dog. David's going to die. There's a sword pointed at him. He's asking God to save his life. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Lord, I need you now. And it's right after this, a flick of a switch, no explanation. God does deliver him, and God does save him. And that brings us to our second point. So point number one, the king's painful prayer. Point number two, the king's praise. And there is a dramatic shift now. There is no longer this uh, feeling of abandonment anymore, but now a song of victory, a song of praise. Verse 21 to 23, you have rescued me. You have rescued me. So the sword pointed at him, enemies all around him. Now David is rescued. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. You who fear the Lord, praise him. The king has been rescued, and we know that it was God who has rescued the king. And this situation now encourages and cultivates David now to praise the Lord. The king turned to God in trouble. The king now again turns to God in praise in light of the deliverance that God has done for him in rescuing him. 
and, and the rest of our text, so anything after verse 23, essentially speaks on the levels of praise that King David will give to God in light of this deliverance that was shown. The king has been rescued. The king has been saved. Now all the king wants to do is to tell of the goodness of the Lord. When God does something in your life, we should want to tell everyone around us about what the Lord has done. A few weeks ago, and, and even today, Harry kind of touched on this point that I'm about to make. One of his application points uh, in uh, his Wednesday night worship sermon at North Shore Baptist Church on the overview of the uh, book of Micah was essentially like when you speak about the things of the Lord and when we worship the Lord, you should add an exclamation point to it. In that very same way today, Harry earlier today spoke about that. And when God does something in your life, it should encourage us to praise God. So his application was, because God saved you, you should sing all the more. You should sing all the louder. You should sing all the more expressive. Now, imagine King David upon his deliverance. He has been saved. Literally, his life has been saved. He just goes, you have rescued me. I will tell your name to the brothers. Now imagine him going to his congregation in light of this great deliverance. His life has been saved. He is no longer forsaken. And now he's trying to encourage the people in his church, in his local congregation. He's just like, yeah, God delivered me. You who fear the Lord, praise him. That's not, that's not how David would, would go about praising the Lord. There's just abundance of exclamation points. David, you, Lord, you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to the brothers. The king has been delivered. You who fear the Lord, God is real. God is true. He has delivered me. You should also praise him because he will also deliver you. Our God is faithful. Our God is true. There's a confidence that comes to the people of God when he answers prayer, when he delivers us. The king has been delivered, and the king now looks forward to worshiping and praising God. And now he also wants to worship and praise God with the congregation. There's an exclamation point. There's a longing. There's an excitement to praise God in light of what he has done. I pray this be the same for us. Many of you have tasted and seen that God is good. Many of you were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved you. He has rescued you. God has delivered you. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Friends, this should not bring a a monotone, reserved uh, praise and worship. What you had coming your way was death, eternal death. This should turn and cause us to praise him individually we should praise the lord that should be in our mind that god has rescued us he has saved us but also corporately we should praise the lord in light of people coming together who have been rescued who have been delivered so very practically if any part of the sermon uh, of any sermon you listen to reminds you of the goodness of god and uh, encourages you to also praise him. Friends, I encourage you to vocalize it. Speak about it. Say amen. Say hallelujah. Verse 22 says, The king will tell of God's name to the brothers. So vocalize your worship to God, to the people in the congregation. Speak about the things of the Lord. Let it be known who you are praising, why you are praising him. We are all people with different backgrounds, with one similarity. We are sinners saved by grace. So I hope that in our preaching, 
that our worship, that our praise to him, whether it be individual or corporate, I hope that all aspects of our worship reflects the joy that we have, the excitement that we have, and that it ultimately reflects what God has done for us. So we're not, we're not praising, we are not excited to worship for something that isn't a good reason. We are excited to worship. We are praising the Lord because he has delivered us. He has rescued us. So our worship should reflect what God has done for you and God has done good to many of you here. He has saved you. He has rescued you. And this is a little side note. This one is for free. Uh, People who are not Christians will walk into our church. Many people who do not believe in God will walk into our church. People who have never heard the name Jesus will walk into our church. And when these people look at how you worship, people should be able to see what God has done in your life. It should be obvious. When you sit down with your notes every Sunday, taking notes, being attentive, flipping pages, looking at cross-references, not falling asleep, because you do those things primarily because God has delivered you, you worship God, you praise God, and now you want to hear what the Lord says in his word. Why else do we sing loudly why else do you put your hands up in worship it is because primarily actually only because god has delivered you so when these people come they may not believe in god but they can see that god is true to you they can see that by how you bring about your worship how you praise how you tell of his name in the congregation all of this should reflect what god has done for you. So friends, I encourage you to live, worship, and praise God with his mercy on your mind and his mercy as a driving force of your praise and worship to him. I'm sure when people looked at David after this moment, upon his deliverance, they can see that God was true for him, that God delivered him, that God saved him. The king praises God. But it doesn't end there. Uh, the song continues. There's more to Psalm 22. And it's, it's just so much deeper than just uh, a local king in King David and his local congregation. Remember, there's levels to this praise. Uh, and it brings me to our next and final points. So point one, the king's painful prayer. Point two, the king's praise. And lastly, point three, we see God's plan. We see God's plan and that will cover verse 23 to 31 the king so king david's personal story of trouble and vindication is a part of a larger story of god's redemptive plan and work in the world psalm 22 is just oozing in prophecy just oozing in truths about jesus christ speaks on uh, the initial plan that the lord has had since before the fall of creation in genesis chapter 3. The ultimate takeaway from Psalm 22 is not David was struggling, then he turned to the Lord. So in that very same way, when we struggle, we should also turn to the Lord. That is, that is one takeaway. I've, I've mentioned that, uh, but that's not the ultimate takeaway from the book of Psalms. It's bigger than me and you. It's bigger than just king david the ultimate takeaway from psalm 22 is that god has a plan and god has fulfilled this plan the psalm gives us a preview of what was in the heart and mind of the messiah the psalm shows us the distress while he felt 
the very things he felt while on the cross. Ozo shows us what was on his mind upon his victory, upon the deliverance of not King David, but King Jesus. Here's what Acts 2, verse 30 says. It's speaking about King David being therefore a prophet. So King David being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And I think that is what's happening here in Psalm 22, verses 23 to 31. God's plan is all over Psalms 22. Since the fall of creation in Genesis 3, mankind has been cursed, mankind has been forsaken, and God's presence is no longer the same way it was in the Garden of Eden. Before the fall, mankind had unfiltered communion with God. God would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. After the fall, there is a curse. After the fall, there is now separation. You could even describe it as forsaken. We are forsaken. And that was the purpose of the earthly earthly ministry of King Jesus. The Holy One became forsaken for you and for me. Psalm 22 shows us that while on the cross, God's plan was being completed. While on the cross, prophecy was being fulfilled. Jesus had this very psalm in his mind. Hanging there on the cross, the innocent man, the eternal king, the son of God who was meant to be worshipped. In Psalm twenty-two sixteen, says, his hands was pierced and his feet was pierced. This king Jesus, he was crowned but he was crowned in the most humiliating way. In front of everyone, the king of kings was crowned with a crown of thorns. But from read a sign, King Jesus, king of the Jews, as if it was some joke, as if it was entertainment. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them. So look at Matthew 27, 35. Compare it to Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And the people whom he very much is king of, the people whom were waiting for this Messiah, these are the very same people that are his enemies. The people that are supposed to bow the knee are mocking him all the more. Let's contrast Psalm 22, 8 and Matthew 27, 43. I'll be reading only Matthew 27, 43, but look on your own on the projector for Psalm 22, 8. This is the Jews speaking to Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They are mocking him because of his faith in the Lord. These people uh, claim to know the scriptures and they uh, unknowingly are aligning themselves with the enemies of the king, not their God. After this great suffering, after this great tribulation, King Jesus makes one final shout as he approaches the end of his life. It gets Matthew 27, verse 46. Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is Psalm 22, 1. One of the most profound mysteries in the Bible is the substitutionary work on the cross. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ became a curse for us. He has been forsaken. Scripture says that 
in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he made him who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was bearing the sins of his people. He was bearing the wrath of God. Jesus was feeling despair, forsaken, while the wrath of God was being poured out. And there was not a, a separation or a division with, within the Trinity. So God the Son did not cease to be God the Son. This plan was set in place before the foundation of the world. And it was his plan to send his Son to die on the cross. Uh, the suffering of Christ was not because of any sin he committed, but the suffering of Christ was all our sin laid on his shoulders. And that is what he did for his people. He was forsaken so that me and you do not have to be forsaken. He was cursed so that me and you are no longer under the curse of sin. He became sin so that me and you can become the righteousness of God. Jesus makes that loud cry, why have you forsaken me, so that that cry will never come out of our lips. Divine judgment is something that we will never be able to comprehend. In the eternity of hell, we will seek deliverance and there will be no deliverance. On the cross, Christ was forsaken for you and for me. And in light of that now, in him taking our sins for us, he will never leave us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you are here and you are not a believer, this can also be true for you. Deliverance can only be found in King Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him. He will take the curse of sin from your shoulders and put it on himself on the cross by repenting and believing that Christ is Lord. You will not be forsaken, but you will be joined with him for all of eternity. None of Christ's suffering was wasted. Every drop of that cup of agony was and is used to the great glory of God. You read Matthew uh, 27 by this point, and if we just stop reading Matthew 27 after Christ shouts, why have you forsaken me? It also seems like defeat. It also seems like sadness. But remember, as we said before, this psalm is not a psalm of defeat. This psalm is a psalm of victory, a psalm of deliverance. And I think that Jesus had the victory and praise of God in his mind while on the cross. Hebrews 2.12 says, this is the words of Christ, is what Hebrews 2.12 is saying. Compare that to Psalm 22.22, Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus is looking forward to the praise of the Lord. And this praise, when does it happen in our earlier point? This praise comes when? In light of God's deliverance. And where do we see God's deliverance in Matthew? And it is ultimately in the resurrection of King Jesus. The King of Kings was not ultimately defeated. We sung earlier in King Forevermore. The third verse says, lifted high the sinless man. So the sinless man is hanging on a tree. They crucified the spotless lamb. He was buried by the sons of man but he was rescued by the Father's hand to what? To reign as king forever. Here's what Galatians 1.1 says, God the Father raised him from the dead. God the Father raised Christ from the dead. The king has been delivered, but not only King David, King Jesus has been delivered. King Jesus has been rescued. The king is reigning now. So praise God in light of the deliverance 
of King Jesus in light of the resurrection of King Jesus. So those very cries of for- forsakenness turn to cries of victory, of deliverance, and praise. And we see that locally in the earlier verses. And, you know, David individually wants to praise God. David also wants to praise people in, uh, in, in his local congregation. But then as the psalm continues, we see a, a bigger scale of worship. This is not a victory of a mere worldly king. This is a victory for the king of kings, Jesus Christ. The victory of King Jesus has implications for the world, for future generation. Psalm 22, we saw how this affected David and led him to praise God. But King David's personal story of trouble and deliverance is, as previously mentioned, a part of a larger story of God's redemptive plan. The larger story of God's redemptive plan is uh, fulfilled in the cross And what does this victory uh, look like uh, in light of the cross? Uh, A mere local king cannot bring about the praise and worship that we will soon speak about in Psalms 22. A mere King David cannot bring about the feast and praise and worship that King Jesus will bring about in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It is only through the gospel of Christ that the world can worship the Lord. It is only through the gospel of Christ that we can see a praise to this magnitude. King David will not bring about praise to the Lord to this degree. Psalm 22, 30 to 31 says, Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. So because of the deliverance of King Jesus, there's a victory coming for, for generations and there's a, a praise coming to the Lord to generations and people who are yet to be born. Because of the work of King Jesus, God will be praised for generations upon generations. That's something amazing to think about and that's something that was in the very minds of Christ. And Psalm 22 ends here in verse 31. He says, he has done it. He has done it. He has fulfilled God's plan. He brings about praise and worship in the coming generation. So what has he done? What work is it? What work, you ask? The answer is the ultimate redemptive plan of salvation. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he fulfilled the psalm. He became the curse for us. He took our sin. He was forsaken so that we don't have to be forsaken. And, and as a result, this is a psalm of praise. There will be individual praise. There will be praise from the people of Israel. There will be praise also from every single nation, of people all around the world. And there will be praise in future generations of people yet unborn. This work is finished. It is finished on the cross. And praise will now follow. King David cannot bring about this praise. Only King Jesus can bring about this praise. So that wraps up Psalm 22. To conclude everything that we spoke about, let's just go through an overview of our three points. Psalm 22 is a situation that happened in David's life. Again, we don't know when it was, but David was on the verge of death, defeat. And during this process, the God who has delivered him seems so far off. 
and his enemies are just approaching closer and closer. He's still giving praise to God. He's still hoping in God, but his enemies come closer and things seem all the more scary. He feels forsaken. All seems lost. He is cornered, and right before death will come, the king is rescued by God, and he acknowledges that it is from the Lord. This then leads David to praise God. He rejoices in his deliverance. He cannot wait to worship now with his local congregation, but this worship does not just end there. It goes further into a feast that includes future generations, the ends of the earth, people who are not yet born. And it shows us that this is something bigger than David. The deliverance of a mere king would not invoke the response of praise that Psalm 22 invokes. David does not ultimately fulfill this and bring about this promise. But Jesus Christ fulfills this. It's ultimately about Christ. Psalm 22 is ultimately about Jesus Christ. It is because of the deliverance of Christ when he said it is finished that the ends of the earth and the coming generations will praise God. So David, in the past, looking towards to the future after his own, own victory and own deliverance from God, he is now using that at delivery, using that deliverance from God as a mere foretaste of the deliverance of the King Jesus and the praise and worship that will come in light of the deliverance of King Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us. A response there is praise. It's praise and worship. So friends, that is Psalm 22. I'm going to leave you with two very brief takeaways. Takeaway number one is you were once forsaken, but now in communion with God. So remember that you were once forsaken, but now in communion with God. So I encourage you, friends, to not overlook this fact, to not forget this. Remember that on the cross, Jesus Christ had you in mind. His cries of distress, his cries of forsakenness, him bearing the cross, bearing the wrath of God, this was all done for you. This was all done for his people. And as Christ himself fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 22 and meditated on the truths, knowing that the work of the cross would bring about this praise to God. So Jesus was longing for the worship and praise of the Lord. He was longing for his victory in which people from all around the world would be praising the Lord. He had in mind sinners paid for by the blood, by his own blood, now praising him. Remember this. Do not forget this. This is what our hope is in life and death, the work of Christ. So we praise him in light of that. We sing loudly in light of that. He was forsaken so that we may become sons and daughters. Jesus rose again. Jesus is victorious. The king has been delivered. We are therefore now not forsaken, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Application point number one, remember that you were once forsaken, but now you are in communion with God. Application point number two is to think of the big picture. Think of the big picture. If you leave here today and and leave only with the application of a a very uh, individual viewpoint of salvation, that God saved me and that's it, then you have missed the point of the last few verses 
of Psalms 22. Psalm 22 shows us that God's redemptive plan was in the mind of Christ. So not, not only did Christ have you on his mind while he was suffering on the cross, in his mind he had the people of Israel. In his mind, he had people from all around the world. In his mind, he had future and coming generations. In his mind, he had people who were not even yet born, whom he would save, whom would then worship and praise the Lord. He has in mind all these people groups throughout history and time that they will be praising the Lord. And then he describes this worship feast that no one will comprehend on this side of eternity. Think big picture. This means that we should spread the gospel all the more, evangelize all the more, pray for the nations, be faithful parents, that people will praise the Lord in light of the deliverance of King Jesus. He was not defeated. Jesus Christ rose again. It doesn't stop with individual praise. The praise of God will spread and grow as the kingdom grows So First Baptist, I encourage you, keep doing what you're doing. Keep supporting missions. Support and partake in evangelism. Redemptive history is so much bigger than just me and you and so much bigger than the Upper West Side. So think large scale and seek to see his kingdom grow and praise his name and watch how his name is praised in every language, every tribe, every tongue. Let us, like David, look into the future Let's long to praise his name in heaven when every tribe and tongue come together where the generations of faithful saints are together in one place in heaven worshiping God forever. So that is what we look to. That is what Psalm 22 ultimately points to is the deliverance of King Jesus and the implication it has not only on me and for you but the entire world. There will be people coming together from all around the world, different generations, praising the Lord And we get a picture of that great feast, that praising of the Lord when we meet together. It is a mere foretaste when we sing together of what we'll be doing in heaven with everyone from different tribes and different tongues worshiping King Jesus. So I hope that is on your mind, friends. Think big scale. Think of the big picture. I'm going to wrap us up, close us in prayer as we sing one more song and be dismissed. So please pray with me. Lord, you have won. You have rose again. Through your death, burial, and resurrection, Father, we can confidently sing, we can confidently praise and worship you, Father. So we are reminded of your deliverance, Father, that you have delivered us also, that you have saved us. Lord, so we praise you for the work you have done in each and every one of us, Father. Lord, just pray, Lord, that we give you proper praise, Father. Have that be in our minds throughout our lives, that we give you the glory in all things that we do. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.